This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, so if you'd turn there, we'd appreciate it, and we're going to be continuing in our study on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. So let's pray one more time for the study of God's Word. We ask, Lord, that you'd bless now your Word, and you're the one who taught this, you're the one that is the authoritative King, and so now King Jesus, we pray that you'd send the Holy Spirit to instruct our hearts and make application, and we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, you know what happened, right? Moses ascended Mount Sinai, and what did he receive there? He received the law. Now Jesus, King Jesus, is ascending a mount in Israel, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And he also is expounding the law. Moses received the law and delivered it to the people. King Jesus authored the law and he's interpreting it for the people and that's where we come this morning in our study in Matthew chapter 5 we see Jesus instructing his followers his disciples his learners as to the proper interpretation of the law that he authored the theme of the sermon is in verse 20 the rest of the sermon really has to do with the with the essence of verse 20 in our text Where Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This will be amplified in the rest of the sermon. Our righteousness, Jesus said, must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, or there will be no entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Now the problem with that is that the ethic that he's going to lay out in the rest of these verses is so impossibly high and so incredibly grand that none of us could possibly keep it. So therefore, how could we possibly exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees if the measuring line is so lofty that we'll never touch it? And that's the problem of the text because the law has to be kept. Not one jot or one tittle shall pass from the law until it's all fulfilled. The law must be kept. So if the law must be kept, and it's very high and lofty, too high for us to touch, then what is our hope of exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? So let me try to explain very briefly a process of what goes on in this fulfillment of of the law and in this exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. First of all, the law, the true meaning of it, convinces us of our sinfulness. Takes us by the hand and leads us to the cross and shows us where we can be forgiven. That's step one. Now, until a person sees the true meaning of the law and allows that law to be a flashlight on the heart, There's no way for that person to see his or her own sinfulness. That's what the law does. It provides not a flashlight, but a floodlight on the heart. And says, boy, we are undone. Remember Job? Classic example from the Old Testament. Job had certain opinions about how things were. Certain understandings or lack thereof about who God is and what he does. But then... God showed up and revealed himself to Job and showed his glory and his majesty to this great man. 
And Job said, I have heard of you in the past by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I detest myself and repent in dust and in ashes. See, when Job saw the Lord truly, really saw him, it caused him to understand that he himself was nothing. And that's what the purpose of the law is. It does the same thing. It shows us our need for a Savior. Now, when we have faith in Christ, when we go to the cross and trust in him, we receive what the Bible calls the gift of righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 6. This is the name by which the future Messiah will be called, the prophet Jeremiah wrote. He will be called the Lord our righteousness. He becomes our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So the law leads us to Christ. We trust Him in His finished work at the cross and then God gives to us the gift of a right standing with Him. And at the same time, the same Jesus who died for us, who rose from the dead, He actually comes to live inside of us. He takes up residence in our beings, in our bodies, and actually comes to take over. He moves in, is what he does. He moves in, and he starts sweeping stuff out that doesn't need to be there. He moves in, and he establishes his authority and his control, and he says, okay, now it's just you and me. For the rest of time and eternity, it's just you and me. And the whole conglomeration of the body of Christ that share the same faith. We're together. You and I. Jesus comes to live in us by his Holy Spirit. And then we learn to walk according to the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. We learn to rely upon Christ in us and trust him for everything. Trust him for Christian living. Trust him for issues that come up in our lives. Trust him for sure for our pasts. Trust Him for our futures. We learn to rely upon Him. And as we do, we're walking in the Spirit. And when that happens, the essence, the heart of the law is actually fulfilled in us. As Paul said, walk in the Spirit and you'll not carry out the deeds of the flesh. And then he said, the righteous requirement of the law is being fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And what is the righteous requirement of the law? It's love. Love for God with everything that's in us. Love for our neighbor as ourselves. That's fulfilled in us as we walk in the Spirit. So, the law convicts us of our sin, leads us to the cross. Our own sinfulness is revealed, and then we have faith in Christ. Then Christ comes to live in us, we learn to walk in the Spirit, and the law is actually fulfilled. That's the process. Now we come to our text. And Jesus begins this passage in verse 21 by saying, You have heard that it was said to those of old. And then this is repeated in verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old. And then in verse 31, Furthermore, it has been said. And then in verse 33, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. And in verse 38, You have heard that it was said. And then in verse 43, you have heard that it was said. Why is Jesus repeating this phrase, you have heard that it was said to those of old? You have heard that it was said. 
The reason he's saying that to his hearers because that's exactly how they had received what they understood about truth. It was through hearing. They had heard these things. They had heard them from their teachers, from the scribes and from the Pharisees. They had heard the teachers that they had had, the scribes and the Pharisees, telling them their version of what the meaning of the law was. You see, the folks in Jesus' day hadn't spoken Hebrew since the times of the Babylonian captivity. That's a problem because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so if they hadn't spoken it and they weren't largely reading it, they were actually speaking Aramaic as their language, then how did they have access to the scripture? Plus, the printing press hadn't been invented yet. It was a very tedious process of copying the Old Testament through a scribal process, and they had to do it with great integrity and with perfect exactness. And so there weren't a lot of scrolls around. So you didn't have a scroll sitting on your shelf and one sitting on your coffee table and one sitting on the nightstand next to your bed and one sitting in the glove box of your chariot. They didn't have any of those sorts of things going on at all. They didn't have copies for themselves. So they completely relied upon what they were being told. So they had heard that it was said. They had heard that it was said but they couldn't check it out themselves. It's not unlike what happened during the days of the Protestant Reformation, where the predominant version of the Bible that was being used was the Latin Vulgate, and it was being kept under guard by the Catholic Church. And it wasn't really legal to own a Bible or to read it. But the reformers and some of the early reformers who began to translate the Bible and put their own lives on the line for just translating the Bible into the vernacular, into the local language, the commonly accepted dialect, they put their lives on the line and began to distribute this. And then when the printing press was invented in the 15th century and they began to distribute the copies of the scripture, this was a threat to the Catholic Church of the Middle Ages, but it's what opened up the door for the Protestant Reformation. Because the people now had Bibles that they could actually have. A copy of the scriptures in the language that they understood that they could read and they could study. Now just think of what this would do in terms of accountability. You go to church, and now when the guy says, this is what it says, you can look it up and say, is that what it says? And when the guy says, this is what it means, you can look it up and check it out and go back and forth and say, is that what it means? They could have the attitude of the Berean now that they had a copy of the scriptures themselves. We're so blessed that we have Bibles. And we have Bibles in so many different translations. We're so blessed to have that. We take it for granted so easily. But the Bible we have is ours at the cost of many, many lives. We need to remember that. And it's precious that we have a copy of the Word of God. So, the problem in Jesus' day was that they had heard. But how could they know for sure that that's what was being taught? Or that's what was true about the law? Now notice another phrase that appears in all of these verses. In verse 22, he says, But I say to you, 
And in verse 28, he says, but I say to you. And in 32, but I say to you. And in 34, I say to you. And in 39, but I tell you. And in verse 44, but I say to you. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus said, you've heard that it was said to those of old. And then he would explain some properly or commonly understood part of the law. You've heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you. I mean, this is what you've been told, but let me give you the real scoop. Let me give you the truth of the matter. Let me tell you what it really says and what it really means. What's Jesus doing here? Before we answer the question, what's Jesus doing here? We have to ask another question, that is, whose law is it? The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are pure, making wise the simple. Whose law is it? It's the law of God. He's the author. He wrote and inscribed this law on the tablets, gave them to Moses. He sent them to the people. It was the law of God. So what's Jesus doing here? Back to that question. What he's doing is he's claiming for himself that he is not only the author of the law, but the only rightful interpreter of it. Only King Jesus can interpret this law. Only King Jesus grasps the concepts because he authored it. We realize how how staggering of a thing that is to understand. That means that these red letters that we're reading in our Bibles... These come from the king. These come from the creator of the universe. These come from the same one who gave the law of Moses to Moses on Mount Sinai. That makes this special. Boy, we hold it with with great respect. We read it with great reverence. We trust in the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to help us with this. To make it real and part of our lives. That's the attitude that we're to have. But I say unto you, it's a huge point. He's giving us the true meaning of the law. Jesus is. He's speaking with great authority, with the authority of God himself. So now what he does in these verses, verses 21 through 48, is he gives us six examples of what they had heard and what he says about it. He gives six examples of the commonly held beliefs according to the law, and six exact and perfect understandings concerning what the law really says and what it really means. And it's an interesting study. We're going to go through it quickly. I wish we had time. Usually when I teach through the Sermon on the Mount, I take a whole study just for each one of these six examples. And it's easy to do that. But we're going to race through it this morning, not at breakneck speed, but at speed enough to keep it interesting, hopefully. Verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of of the judgment. So that's what they had been told, the law says, You shall not murder. Now the way they were applying it is, Murder was restricted to the physical act of murder. When you take someone's life, Physically, you are guilty of murder. But if you've not done that, then you're not guilty of murder. Therefore, you're not liable for the judgment. That was the attitude. That was the view. 
Verse 22, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, a term of disdain, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will not by any means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. So they had said, physical act of murder, guilty of the judgment. Jesus said, this is the real meaning. Anger, attitudes of disdain towards your brother, calling them a fool, or any other attitude that demeans another human being. That person is also guilty of murder. And is in great danger. In danger, in fact, Jesus said, of hellfire. First uh, John three fifteen says the same thing. Jesus said, or John said in that passage, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It's a strong statement. I don't know about you. Have you ever hated anyone? Have you ever been disdainful against anyone? Have you ever thought of anyone as a fool or even called someone a fool? Have you ever demeaned another person, either through anger or through gossip or through listening to gossip? Has that ever happened? Don't raise your hand. I know it's happened with every one of us. What does that make us? That makes us guilty. Makes every one of us guilty. We're in big trouble, according to the law. And then Jesus gives his specific counsel, what to do about this. If you're there, bring in your gift to the altar. And of course he's referring to the altar of the temple that existed in that day. And then you remember that someone has something against you. In other words, this is a legitimate complaint that someone has against you. You did something to cause that person harm. It is better for you to leave your gift there at the altar, go and deal with it, get reconciled as much as is possible, and then come back and worship. This is how important of an issue this is to God. He doesn't even want worship to be directed to Him as long as there is this hatred and anger and disdain toward my fellow human being and undealt with sins that I have committed against another. That's serious stuff. And he tells us to agree with our adversary quickly. This would be a reference to the process of owing someone a debt. Agree with your adversary. You've got somebody who, to whom you owe a debt, and you've not paid him back, and now he's become your adversary. Agree with him. Deal with this. And if you don't, then you're going to have to pay the penalty that the law and the courts will hand down to you. Now, that's the basic principle. What have we learned? Anger is like murder. 
Anger is the seedbed for murder. Disdain for another is like murder. It's the seed of murder. It's how murder is born. So what do we learn? We learn that there's a higher standard than we thought. And we've also seen, if we're honest with ourselves, that we've broken this law. So, if you've broken the law, have you broken the law? Don't raise your hand. I've broken the law. What do we do? We go to Christ and his cross. We go to the cross of Christ, and then if we want to fulfill the law, how do we do that? How do we become loving people that don't hold others in disdain? How do we come, become people that aren't angry at others, that let people be as they are? How do we treat people in a non-adversarial way? How do we become that person, a loving person? Well, we've gone to Christ and his cross. Now to fulfill the law, we trust in Christ who lives in us to empower us to live the way he's called us to live. Okay, so I'm going to repeat that. I'm going to repeat it for every one of these statements that we're going to look at. If you've broken the law, go to Christ and his cross. To fulfill the law, trust in Christ who lives in you to empower you by his spirit. That's the lesson. Okay, ready for example number two? How'd you do with example number one? Starting to sweat bullets here? Maybe confess some things. Maybe get ready to deal with some things. Maybe there's somebody that you just tweaked the other day that you need to untweak as soon as church is over with. Maybe you better leave now. <laughs> okay, example number two. Adultery in the heart, verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, what had they heard? Don't commit adultery. Okay? If I can avoid the physical act of having relations with someone who is married already, or as a married person with someone who is either married or not married, if I can avoid the physical act of adultery, I've kept this commandment. Is that right? That's what they'd heard. No, it wasn't right. Jesus said that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The ESV says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. I like that. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. That's the male version, perhaps the female version. Whoever wants to be looked at with lustful intent. Or perhaps even looks at a man with lustful intent. What do you think? Just Let's just pause for a second and ask another question. What do you think Rabbi Jesus would say about our contemporary use of pornography? What is so widespread? What do you think he would say about that? Uh, now some uh, people, men particularly, say, well, what I'm doing in private isn't hurting anyone. It's just me and the magazine or the video or the computer screen, whatever it might be. It's just me. I'm not hurting anyone. So therefore, how am I doing anything that's wrong? It must be okay. Would Jesus agree with that kind of thinking? No, I don't think he would either. I think he would condemn it. Uh, and, and to put wheels on this, think of your wife if you're a married man and you're indulging in, in pornography. 
How would she feel if you knew, if she knew you were indulging in, in pornography? Don't you think she would feel devalued? Don't you think she would feel like you are replacing her by images on a screen or in a magazine or in a video? Don't you think she would feel like she has been emotionally ruined by your sin? Don't you think that it would hurt her deeply? Think of your future spouse if you're not married. What if that future spouse knew that this was your habit? Would, would she welcome it with goodness? Oh, good, I'm really happy that you're able to enjoy this private fantasy world that you're living in. Bring it into our home. Let's go ahead. She wouldn't say that at all. She would say, uh, hopefully she would say, Danger Will Robinson. I don't want to connect with any guy that thinks this is right. I'm staying away from this as far as I possibly can. Buddy, if you want to marry me or even think about it, this is what you got to do. you got to get your act cleaned up, and you got to get healed of this addiction, and you got to put it out of your life, and you got to start living a responsible life in your thought and your word and your action. And that would be my advice to young unmarried women. Stay away from guys that justify the use of pornography. Okay? Then... What about the object of your lust in that video or in that magazine or on that computer screen? That, that girl, that woman, is somebody's daughter. How'd you like to be that guy whose daughter it is that you are lusting after? And what if he had your address? What would he be justified in doing? I mean, really. It's something to think about. Think about the prison that she's in. It's the same prison you're in. She's being killed daily by her involvement in such an industry. She's dying emotionally. She's dying spiritually, maybe even physically, through some STD that she's acquired. What about you? You're dying the same death. Finally, remember 1 Corinthians 6.18, the bondage that comes into a soul when somebody indulges. Flee sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6.18 says. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. A man who indulges in pornography is sinning against his own body and against his own soul. He is twisting and warping his own spiritual and emotional nature. He's becoming a very bad version of himself in his justification of doing it. Well, obviously it's a problem in our culture. I'm hoping that in the future we'll be able to provide real help for men who have become involved in, in, in pornography so that they can be free of it forever. Free of it forever. Would you guys like that if we provided that type of ministry? I think it's needed and important. And Jesus gives some other additional counsel. If your right eye offends you, or causes you to sin, pluck it out. If it's your right hand, then cut it off. Uh, let's keep in mind now, this is Rabbi Jesus teaching. He's intentionally exaggerating spiritual hyperbole for the specific purpose of making a point. This is serious stuff, not to be trifled with. Take 
radical measures to deal with it. You mean I need to get rid of my computer because I can't handle it? Yep, get rid of the computer. But I need my computer. Use the one at the office. You mean I have to put accountability software on my computer and have an accountability partner or three that can find out every website I've been going to? Yep, yep, that's what you do. Take radical measures because it's a radical problem, this idea of lust. Okay, now, again the question. Anybody failed in this area? Not necessarily pornography, but it's just an area of lust. Anybody failed in this area? You don't have to answer. The law's done its job, hasn't it? It's made us guilty. It's shown us our sin. Again, if we've broken the law, go to Christ and his cross. There's forgiveness there. And then fulfill, to fulfill the law, to be a person who doesn't lust, but who treats others with respect, trust in Christ who lives in you to empower you by the Holy Spirit. That's how it works. Does that make sense? Is it starting to make sense? I need a little feedback here. It's starting to make sense. Okay. Because I don't want to move on unless we're making sense here. Because this is important stuff. Remember, this is King Jesus talking. This isn't Pastor Bill talking. This is King Jesus talking. And it's important to listen to what he says. Okay, we've got time for one or two more, I suppose. In verse 31, Jesus goes on. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, now what they had heard is, if you divorce your wife, give her a certificate of divorce. Now they had misinterpreted and misapplied Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. I'll give you that as a cross-reference. It's in your notes. Go look it up later and see what Moses actually said in the original injunction. But what it had made, their misinterpretation and misapplication of this, what it had made is it made it easy for for divorce to occur. All a man had to do is say, "I I, I divorce you. And here is my written statement. And it could be for just about anything. Now some rabbis, Rabbi Shammai, he said, no, it can't be for any reason. It has to be only for the reason of sexual immorality. But Rabbi Hillel and his followers, they said, just about any reason. If your wife is displeasing to you, then you can divorce her. And the culture was a culture of easy divorce because of it. Because which view do you think they'd most naturally want to embrace? The easy one, right? And why would we want to embrace the easy one? Why has our culture embraced the easy one? We have no-fault divorce in the state of California. didn't used to be that way. used to be there had to be uh, proceedings. There had to be evidence that there was grounds for divorce. There had to be six months of a cooling-off period, there ha- uh, which we still have today. But there had to be counseling. There had to be appearances before a judge. You had to prove your case. But we've abandoned all that. No-fault divorce, just a writing of divorcement. That's all that's needed. Divorce is easy today. To obtain. 
And why do we opt for an easy solution and an easy divorce rather than a more strict standard? And here's the reason. Divorce is in our hearts. And the reason divorce is in our hearts is because the world and the flesh and the devil want to destroy and kill whatever God puts together. God is for unity. God is for a a man leaving his father and mother to be joined to his wife and they too become one flesh. That's what God is for. And the devil is against anything God is for. And the world is against anything God is for. And our flesh is against anything God is for. We have divorce in our hearts, naturally. So we opt for the easy version of these things. And if we can get out of the marriage, we will. As evidenced by the way our culture is handling these kinds of things. That's the problem. So where does Jesus fall? on this whole debate between the two rabbis' schools. Look at verse 32. But I say to you, and he's not taking one rabbi's side as opposed to the other. He's interpreting the law, what it really intended to say. And this is what he says. Whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery because she goes out, and if she remarries, that's the thing he's put her into. And if you marry a woman divorced, you commit adultery. That is, if you marry a woman divorced except for sexual immorality, that would be included there. By inference, you are committing adultery. So Jesus says that the only legitimate grounds for divorce is sexual immorality. That is an ending of the marriage bond because of the infidelity of the spouse. Now, just because a spouse is unfaithful doesn't mean a divorce has to happen. It's not a law that says, okay, your spouse is unfaithful, therefore you must divorce her. But in the cases where reconciliation, because of the hardness of the spouse's heart, is impossible, then divorce can only be granted because of and on the basis of sexual immorality. Now, Paul the Apostle adds one more provision, which wasn't applicable in Jesus' day because there was not yet a church, so to speak, with believing and unbelieving people. All were theists and believers in God in Jesus' audience. And his further clause, Paul's was, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, is that if a believer has an unbelieving spouse and the unbelieving spouse departs the marriage... Let the unbelieving spouse depart. You're no longer in bondage. You're free. So there's the other clause. Now again, what does this do? It shows us the proper interpretation of the law. What does the proper interpretation of the law always do? It exposes sin within us. And some of us have sinned by wanting divorce even though we haven't followed through on it. And others of of us have sinned by obtaining a divorce, even though we didn't have spiritual grounds or biblical grounds. So what happens in a situation like that? Is there no forgiveness? Absolutely not. There is forgiveness. Sorry for the double negative. There is forgiveness. The law convicts us of our sin. And what happens when the law convicts us of our sin? 
If you've broken the law, go to Christ and his cross. To fulfill the law, to become a person who doesn't want divorce in the heart or in action, trust in Christ who lives in you to empower you by the Holy Spirit to keep your promise. What we're saying here, and what Jesus is saying here, according to the proper interpretation of the law, is that even illegitimate divorce is not the unpardonable sin. It has a social stigma. It has a stigma within the church, for sure. But it's not the unpardonable sin. Hopefully, we can trust the Holy Spirit and Jesus in us to eradicate even the desire to end the marriage bond from our hearts. And that's something we need Jesus to do. That's a mouthful. There's an awful lot that just got said in these last few minutes. Are we clear? Okay, we'll have to have a wrap about this just to clarify, I'm sure. Okay, we're at 11.10. Let's go to the next one. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So what had they heard? What they had heard is that you're not to swear falsely, verse 33, but you are bound to perform your oaths that are made to the Lord. But what was their practice? Well, they started swearing by heaven, a physical location. They started swearing by the earth, this planet. They started swearing by the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus, and, and, and in doing so, they felt like they were making a lesser oath that wasn't as binding. It's kind of like, you know, my sister and I, when we were growing up. She'd say, are you telling me the truth? And I could say to her, yes, I am. But usually I said, yes, I am. Did you catch that? I crossed my finger, put it behind my back. It was less binding. Or I'd cross my feet. And so she'd look under the table to see if my feet were crossed. And then she'd look, show me your hands, your feet, and everything. She couldn't trust me. Because she didn't know if I was telling her the truth. I was always trying to make an exception. And if she couldn't see my hands crossed or my legs crossed, I'd cross my eyes. And technically, my nose hairs were crossed, so I was always able to not tell the truth. That's the way it worked. And they were, they were sort of doing that. Swear by heaven, swear by the earth, swear by Jerusalem. It's a less binding oath. I'm not held to the same level of accountability. And that was the habit that they got into. But Jesus pointed out, all these things come from God. Heaven? What's heaven? Heaven's a place that God made. It's God's throne. What's earth? Earth is a place that God made. It's his footstool. What's Jerusalem? It's the city of the king. He owns it. 
So if you swear by heaven or swear by the earth or swear by Jerusalem, you're swearing by God. Don't kid yourself. So any form of oath-taking in that sense is binding. You can't get out of it by crossing your fingers or crossing your eyes. But Jesus surpasses all of that by giving us the great statement here about what integrity is all about. I love verse 37. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Just say yes, and it means yes. You know how rare that is? Yes, I will be there at 9 o'clock, and if I'm not there, I'll call. Okay, out of 10 people that make that promise, how many are actually going to do it? And that's simple. You see, there's deceit in our hearts. It lives there because we want an advantage in interpersonal communication and interaction. We want to be able to be autonomous. We want to be able to live like we want to live. We don't want to be bound by what we say. My commitment was just a suggestion. It was a possibility. It wasn't a reality. And Jesus said, no, that's not the way it ought to be. Yes should mean yes and no should mean no. And both are important. If you really need to say no, much better to say no than it is to say yes and regret that you said yes. But if you meant to say no and you said yes, keep the commitment you made when you said yes. And if you said yes, or vice versa, you, you figure it out. Be a person of your word. The issue is integrity. Okay, again, what has the law done? How are we feeling now? Wow. I'm undone. I'm undone. The law's done its job. So, if we've broken the law, go to Christ and his cross. And to fulfill the law, trust in Christ who lives in you to empower you by his spirit so that you and I can be people of integrity. Do you see what, what's happening here? The Lord is showing us the areas in which it's important to him that we be people of integrity, or we be people of morality, or we be people of honesty and of high ethics. And the only way to get there is to trust Messiah Jesus who lives in us. Amen? I'm going for it, guys. Sorry. Here we go. You've heard that it was sad, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Now this is, for many people, the most difficult of all of these injunctions. They had heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, just strict, one-for-one, one, tit-for-tat justice. And, in some cases, 
in their view, it could be applied personally. That is, if you offended me in this way, I have a responsibility to come back and do the same to you. But what we have to do is clear up all the confusion about this. So tune in. The big idea here is that punishment needed to fit the crime, but no more. It was a limitation on justice. If I knocked out somebody, somebody's eye and I took this thing to the courts and they sued me and wanted damages, they couldn't take this eye and then the other one. They were limited to just one eye. So that's one level of the interpretation of all this, the way it was interpreted under the Old Covenant. The limitations on the extent of the justice couldn't be greater than the crime. Okay? So that's one thing. And another thing to understand is that this was never enforced personally. If I had something that was a legal matter, some infringement or breaking of the law, I wasn't free to take matters into my own hands and exact the punishment. I couldn't do that. I had to take it to the courts. I had to take it to the judge. It was their responsibility to hear both sides of the matter, to decide the guilty party, and then the judge would be the one that would indicate the proper level of justice. Okay, so that, that, that does a lot in helping us understand these things. God uses government, by the way, Romans 13, to punish evil. If we didn't have government to punish evil, then we would have what is called anarchy, no rule at all, and any form of government is better than anarchy, even if it's an evil form of government. Because anarchy completely removes the restraints from human behavior. And then he applies it. Somebody slaps you on the right cheek. Turn to him the other also. I think one way to look at this is that most people are right-handed. This is the view of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I like it. Most people are right-handed. So for me to slap somebody on their right cheek, I have to backhand them. It's the only way to do it. A backhanded slap on the face, the ultimate insult. Not too many people are mortally injured through a slap on the face. Not too many people even have a broken jaw as a result of the flat slap on the face or a broken tooth. Usually it's just redness and maybe a little swelling. But it stings the ego is what it does. Somebody slapped me? Even if it was a slap on my left cheek with their right hand. Slap you? What? What? Really? You just slapped me? I would feel like you just dissed me big time, bro. What happened? I mean, it would hurt. It would hurt. Not necessarily physically so much, but the ego's bruised, and I feel like, wow, something's really wrong with this. I'm wrong with this. And I want to get back. What Jesus is saying here is we have to allow ourselves to be shamed. Who do we think we are that we have all of these rights for all of this justice? And why do we cry out for justice when we don't want it really to be applied evenly as it pertains to us? Much, much better to cry out for mercy than it is for justice. And if I've received mercy, I should be willing to give it Blessed are the merciful, remember, for they shall 
obtain mercy. So that's the deal. We must allow ourselves to be shamed, inconvenienced, put upon, to be humble. Now what about self-defense? Sometimes people use this verse to argue against the defending of self. I don't believe it's prohibited here at all. But in an act of self-defense, I think it's reasonable to say that one should only use enough force to prevent further injury or damage. Just to stop the moment. I've had friends who have been very, very high up in the martial arts. We had one guy in Monterey that was a Sifu, I mean a master in Kung Fu, travel all over the world to teach it. Calmest guy you'd ever meet. I mean, he had, he had no desire to pick a fight. I mean, back when I was a kid, I'd think, yeah, somebody that knows judo or kung fu or karate or something like that, they're just bad. And they want to just go rough somebody up. But then I started meeting people who had learned some of these techniques, and I found them to be very just confident people. And they didn't need to use their power because they had a whole lot more than the people that were costing them. And when they did, they would defend themselves to the point where the action stopped. I, th- I think that's reasonable. But what Jesus here is referring to is this whole attitude of the heart. It's all important. We want to retaliate. We want revenge. These are the things that are wrong in God's sight. We want to get back. You slap me? Okay. Hang on, man. Roundhouse. Not so. Not so. Just let it go. Let it go. Again, how does this do for us? We feel pretty broken up. Because in our hearts are these attitudes of retaliation and revenge and getting our rights and having ourselves vindicated and all of these things. We're just proud. So, if we've broken the law... Go to Christ and his cross. Fulfill the law. Trust in Christ who lives in you to empower you by the Holy Spirit. Now we come to the last one. Relations with enemies. Verse 43. You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There is no verse in the old covenant that specifically says hate your enemy. But that's what they had heard. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Wow, how's that? That's big. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, he takes care of and he loves everybody. Even people that have spitefully used us, even people that have persecuted us, even people who are unjust, they receive rainfall, they benefit from the sunrise and from the sun shining on them. And so Jesus goes on and he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? He's not saying it's wrong to love those that love us. He's just saying if this is the only scope of your love, the only ones you love are those that love you. Well, the tax collectors, the sinful me people, they live the same way. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? 
Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So what happens when we've got an enemy? What happens when we have someone who curses us? What happens when we have someone who hates us or who persecutes us or, or speaks against us falsely or any other such thing? What, are we, what is the attitude of our heart to be? What are, we, what are we supposed to do practically? We're supposed to love them, bless them, do good to them. And we should be known for this as believers. We should be known for doing good rather than only for what we're against. Too often we believers are known for what we're against. Very clear to the world around us what we are against. And we should be against things. We should be against anything that God is against. But we should be for that which is good. And to do good to those that treat us in this way. And this was part of the instruction that was given to the early disciples in the first and second century. This was like Christianity 101. How to treat your enemies. And they would disciple the young believers and this is one of the things that they would teach them make sure you understand God's requirement for how to treat your enemies and why was that necessary because they had enemies and Christianity more and more became something that was persecuted because of faith in Christ and just on a serious note here not that we've not been serious but it's heating up The antagonism against followers of Jesus is heating up. In this country, which is becoming more and more and more every day a post-Christian culture, and maybe we're even now a post-post-Christian culture. So we can expect it, that there are going to be enemies. We better learn how to do this before it heats up even more. Or else we're going to be caught by surprise and perhaps stumbled greatly by what happens. Do good. Now the summary of everything that he said in verses 21 through 47 is given in verse 48. We know that because of the word therefore. Therefore connects everything that has been said with this next statement. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is the ultimate demand of the law, isn't it? Perfection. That's what the law demands, perfection. And if none of the other ones busted us, this one lays us low. Perfect, like our Heavenly Father is perfect? Yes. That's the demand of the law. Perfect? As God the Son is perfect? By inference, yes. So what does that mean for you and me? It means we're all sinful and we've all come short of the glory of God, everyone. So, once again, if you've broken the law, go to Christ and his cross. But then, I want to fulfill the law too. I don't want to just be forgiven for breaking it. I want to fulfill it. I want to do what the law says because it's important. It's God's word. So to fulfill the law, I'm to trust in Christ who lives in me and he'll fill me with the Holy Spirit and empower me to live this way. So how can I be like my father and have this attitude towards others? 
Well, God loves him too because, look, he's got sunshine. God loves her too because, look, she's got rainfall. God loves him and her because Jesus died for them too. And I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. God loves us all. How can I have this attitude? I go to Christ who lives in me. And he empowers me by the Holy Spirit to live this way. It's what the law demands. So the sermon is at once a high ethic that is unachievable, that drives us to the cross of Christ. But on the other hand, it is an ethic that we're to strive for to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Completely dispense with any attitude that says, if I just keep the Sermon on the Mount, I'll be righteous and I can go to heaven. Jesus' interpretation of this law shows that nobody can keep it. So forget it as a basis for righteousness. That has to come through the gift of Christ and salvation. But definitely keep it as the standard by which the Spirit of God wants to work in us so that we might live the life that Jesus wants us to. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we come now to the table of the Lord, we're so grateful that there is forgiveness with you that you might be feared. In Psalm 130, your word says, if you, Lord, were to mark iniquities, who should stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you might be feared. And we're so grateful for that forgiveness. We also thank you for giving us a taste of what it looks like, a visual of what it looks like to live the kingdom ethic getting rid of murder in the heart, but instead being forgiving and loving toward others and being pure in our thoughts and being honest in our words and all of these things that we've talked about. Lord, thank you for setting a high and a lofty standard for us, which we would expect because it's your law and your law comes from you. But we recognize, Lord, that we have no power to keep this in our own strength. So we ask you, Lord, to show us what Christ in us is capable of doing. Fill us with your Holy Spirit to live the way you've called us to live in every arena. And we trust you for it. Thank you for helping us make progress along the way. And for your grace and your patience in the journey. Amen.